This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's well known and proven that connecting with wildlife and nature can improve your overall well-being. So why would you not want to turn it up a notch by getting to see things even closer and clearer with a set of binoculars? It's what I have done and I've not looked back. I can't recommend enough checking out the range of optics that Leica have to offer. A great range of kit with superb optics and they even have payment plans if you don't have the cash up front. I wouldn't shout about a company on the show that I haven't used or been impressed by and it's important to me that companies we are partnered with have the same values as Into the Wild, which is why I'm proud to give them five thumbs up. If you want to check out more of Leica's range, then visit their website that can be found in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello, welcome to Into the Wild. This is, of course, your weekly wildlife and conservation podcast, and I am your host, Ryan Dalton. Cheers, nice one. Thanks for clicking play. Um, there's two buzzards flying right above me. That is awesome. <laughs> Sorry, I've been like... I mean, I'm, I'm walking in these marshlands area. I'll tell you where I am in a minute, but and I could hear them, and they're just circling above me now. That is absolutely stunning. I mean, this is <laughs> for the beginning of a podcast because you lot can't see it, but I, I promise you they're there. <laughs> I could do this every episode, couldn't I? I could. Ju- oh my God! Look at Lynx. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Welcome to the show, nerds. How you doing? Lovely to be talking to you again. I'm back from Namibia, Southern Africa. I'm back in the UK. Had a wonderful time and autumn has arrived. Jesus, the temperature's dropped, which is lovely. Um, we, uh, so when I left, I left the UK at about 26 degrees, got to Namibia at 36 degrees and I've come back to about 13 degrees. So it's been a real fluctuation of temperatures for Ryan over the last two weeks. Uh, but it's lovely to be back in the UK. I had a, had a fabulous time in Namibia, screening the film doing the premiere out there, which was lovely because it's the right thing to do when you make something in a country like that, is to present it back. And then I travelled around with Maxi Lewis from Naxo, went to different conservancies, went to a nice World Rhino Day event. It really was insightful. And there's a few episodes coming your way about the journey and about what we learn out there as well with some interviews with some fabulous people. But it has been nice to uh, come back, chill on the boat. So I'm actually in Harlow at the moment, randomly, on the border of Essex and Hertfordshire. If there's any Harlowians <laughs> listening, uh, I like your town. Uh, we're, so we're on the boat and we're on the River Stort, moving down from a little place called Sawbridgeworth, which is a beautiful town. It's a nice town, but there's just a Budgeons. That's all there is. And the thing with Budgeons, I don't know if anyone shops in Budgeons, but they do something very clever. They've called themselves Budgeons to bring people in thinking, oh, it's a budget shop. I won't spend a lot here. <laughs> what? I spent about 20 quid on three things. Don't let them drag you in with that, <laughs> with that sneaky little way of theirs. But as you can hear, I'm right by the train station in this beautiful little bit of marshland where I am seeing quite a lot of wildlife still. So, you know, the buzzards are still flying around. There they are. Um, so there's got to be other stuff here. Oh my God, what's that? Ugh. Oh, it's a dead shrew. What a start to the podcast has it been so far? Oscar said do the intros like this because they're more engaging and he's not wrong he's not wrong um so yeah it's been nice to be in Harlow we went to a nice park today it's a nice recreational park they had loads of like wild space and stuff I think it's just called town park keep it simple lads they had like uh, a little like zoo there or like a little farm zoo which was nice it's all free for people to go and enjoy like wild meadow areas lots of signs up explaining why they're there and stuff so 
been a nice weekend and we're just taking it so and of course it's ryan's birthday on tuesday gonna be 33. <laughs> so uh please send all the love i expect to see all your kofi tips coming through <laughs> 20 quid minimum minimum come on lads treat a nature nerd well dude's got bills to pay <laughs> i'm joking i'm joking um so it's been an interesting time in the uk isn't it with uh oh, with our government our government that seemed to be just scrapping every law and legislation that was ever put in place and starting from scratch and it was no surprise to see that the sterling dropped <laughs> in panic people are like what are you doing liz calm down you've been in office for nine minutes and you've killed the queen and got rid of currency. What are you doing? <laughs> Jesus. So uh, the pound is worth a little bit less than sand now, which is beautiful. <laughs> but the one that stood out, I think that everyone's seen on social media is uh, subsidies for farmers and landowners to bring back uh, and restore areas for nature on their land, which is a massive thing, especially for a country like the UK, because most of our land is farmland or is privately owned. So. If, if we can incentivize those farmers and landowners to restore nature, that is one of the biggest things that we can be doing and to have any hope to create natural structure back to our landscapes. And for that to be scrapped, basically erased from any kind of hope for our future, I've, it scared the <coughs> out of me and really annoyed me quite a lot when I was, you know, if I'm, I'm being completely honest, I was in Namibia at the time when I read that and I'm, I'm going around and visiting these rural areas and, and even in the city of Vintook and, and hearing from people on the ground that are telling me how much their government, you know, their government has issues, but how much their government cares about their natural environment, their natural systems and its biodiversity. To hear that Namibia is doing that and then to look at my country, the UK, and, and hear that we don't like that or our government is not doing that stuff. I actually got asked the question by several people going, what is wrong with your Western government? And just embarrassing that is. So I was so angry at this stuff. Now, I'm not gonna advise you all what to do. You all know what to do here, email your MP. If you're annoyed about it as well, that's the best thing to do. Now, that can be quite confusing. We're not sure how to do that, but we have got that voice to be able to do it. Now, I've got a link in the write-up of the episode. The RSPB got a fantastic little uh, kind of link site there. Just click on that, you just put in your postcode. If you're a UK resident and a UK voter, put in your postcode, it will tell you your MP. It will scribe an email for you, which you can edit, completely delete yourself and write your own, or you can use that format, um, or you can uh, put bits in yourself. And you can email your MP and tell them you're angry. Now, there have been some replies on social media I've seen from some Conservative MPs uh, standing up for what's going on and saying this is not true, this is an over-exaggeration. I got a lovely reply from my MP, Catherine West. Thanks, Catherine, if you're not, if you're listening, which you're probably not. But thank you so much for your reply. She said she's angry as well, as are, as are all the MPs in her party, and she'll be continuing to push for nature and nature restoration within the UK, as they always do. So thank you for that. And it doesn't matter politically what way you lie. It just, nature should be the priority on everyone's mind. So make sure you do that. If you're a UK resident, a UK voter, Go on, send an email. Let's get this sorted. On to today's episode though. Um, and I genuinely just nearly stood in dog <coughs> which couldn't be, bring me any closer to today's topic, which is talking about dogs and wildlife. Now this is a topic that gets talked about a lot and there's always a lot of shouting for two reasons. One, there's a lot of people, including myself, that absolutely adore the natural world, conservation, protecting it, restoring it, 
and fighting to have it for us and for future generations. Two, there's a lot of people, including myself, that absolutely adores dogs. Um, I'm a professional dog walker. I run a professional dog walking company. I've got a lovely team that walk dogs responsibly. Groups of five, keep them out of wild spaces, take them to green spaces, keep them managed, keep them controlled. But unfortunately around the UK, not everyone does it in those ways. And dogs can, as predators, scare wildlife, threaten wildlife, actually kill wildlife, disturb it. And there's some other things that we kind of overlook sometimes as well, like medical treatment, such as uh, flea and tick treatment that can have an effect on our biodiversity as well. So it's such a huge topic. How do we even get started with talking about this? Now, a lot of the conversations I see just end up getting to arguments. Conservationists saying, you've got, you've got to do this, ban, 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 which I understand where that comes from. And you also get dog owners going, rim, rim, blah, I've had a dog for years and I don't see the bloody problem, which is also uh, not a good point. So, <laughs> so I thought, how can we tackle this? Now, I'm a big fan of collaborations. I think the more different angles you can have coming together, the more success you're going to have uh, with uh, moving forward and correcting some of the issues. So I decided to have two fantastic guests, one of which is a good friend of mine, and you probably all know him as well as the, is a veterinarian and a conservationist called Sean McCormack. Now, Sean is absolutely fabulous human being. He does, he loves communities, he loves conservation, he loves animals, and he kind of ticks all these beautiful boxes. Um, Sean does a lot of work uh, in his, um, not his hometown, but his current, <laughs> where he lives in London, Elin, the Elin Wildlife Group. They set up a rewilding project there, community-based, community-involved. It's potentially where the beavers are going as well, which is exciting. He does some fantastic work there. So as a conservationist, Sean knows what to do. He knows the issues regarding the natural landscapes and wildlife as well. But Sean's also a vet and he knows his dogs. <laughs> so the second person I had on as well that I wanted to is a good friend of mine called Zoe McDonald. Now, Zoe is a professional dog walker she runs a professional dog walking company. She's also a dog trainer. Now, the reason why I wanted Zoe on the show is to talk about how to walk your dog without just having to let it off lead and tear around the landscape. Because there are things we can be doing. I know this as a professional dog walker and a dog owner, and Zoe knows this as well. But I wanted Zoe to come on the show um, to share her piece going, you know what? You don't have to have your dog running around. I don't care what breed it is. I don't care what the energy is. There are ways for us as responsible dog owners to not just do it to the benefit of the natural landscape, but to do it for the benefit of the dog as well. So we've got Sean on to talk about the issues with dogs and tearing up around our natural environments. And we've got Zoe on there to go, you know what lads, we can be doing stuff a little bit differently as well. So this episode is titled Dogs versus Wildlife with Sean McCormack and Zoe McDonald. Enjoy. Welcome to Into the Wild. This is the first time for a long time that we've done a little panel show with a couple of guests, but we are back to talk about a topic. And when we pick something a bit more, I'm going to use the word controversial, we tend to have a couple of people on to give a nice balanced uh, discussion on the, the view or the topic that we're talking about. And today is no different. We are talking about um, dogs versus wildlife with conflict, um, which is something in my life probably plays the biggest part of anything we've spoken about on the show, considering I 
adore nature and I'm always learning about it and work within that, but I also run my professional dog walking company. So it's like my two worlds have combined together. Um, and to help me talk about this very, very emotive topic is um, two people that have exactly the same thoughts as myself because they are in both sides. So we have a vet and conservationist who has a lot of work in the canine industry, but even more so in the conservation world. And then we also have someone who is a dog trainer, dog walker, business owner, and behaviorist, so has all the canine knowledge in the world to uh, help us get to the bottom of this. And these people are Zoe. Lovely to meet you, Zoe. How are you? Hello, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Um, do you want to start? Let's start with the obvious question, Zoe. Do you want to start by telling everyone who you are and what is it you do? So my name's Zoe. I am a Kiwi. So I'm from New Zealand. I've been living in London for about the last 15 years. And uh, after having many different types of jobs here, uh, I've sort of come full circle back to what I both know and love, mm. which is working with animals. I've worked with all sorts of animals over my life. I used to be a marine animal zookeeper in a very past life. <laughs> uh, not something I particularly support anymore, but yeah. it certainly gave me a very good grounding mm. in my knowledge in terms of animal behavior and yeah, absolutely. Uh, training and positive reinforcement and stuff like that. And I now am a behaviorist, a dog behaviorist, a dog trainer, and I own and operate like you, a uh, training and walking business in Northwest London. We never see each other on a walk. I've just realized. we. It's very rare. I think occasionally... Also, I, I tend to avoid, as you know, with our job, um, <laughs> most of the job. I will not take that personally. <laughs> yeah, don't take it personally. But, um, I tend to avoid most things. I mean, that's mm. the biggest part of part the of dog job, walker's job is mm. avoidance. And most of the time, you know, I tend to keep my dogs in their own pack. You know, I appreciate those people that also avoid me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you want an easy um, life, right? Easy life, easy walk, easy dogs. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so I tend to wave from a great distance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hello, goodbye. Yeah, that's yes, very true. But I do always like seeing you. I just like to see you from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> if I had a penny for every time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's lovely to have you on the show and I'm looking forward to hearing about the advice you've got to give or the viewpoint from this topic as well. Our second guest is someone that I am embarrassed to say has taken me two and a half years to get on the show. Um, I've been on his podcast, so this is, um, you know, slightly more pressure, but is the lovely Sean McCormack. Sean, lovely to have you on the show. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for finally getting me on. I was getting a bit paranoid there. <laughs> Why have you not got me on yet? I know. Do you know what? There's so many people that, well, I'm like, why have I not contacted that person? We've conversed so much. Um, but busy no times. Um, I'm here now. You're here now. And do you want to answer that obvious question and tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. So um, I am a vet is my day job. Uh, but uh, like a lot of people that listen to this, I was kind of a lifelong naturalist, always into nature and wildlife, plants, flora and fauna. Um, and became a vet really because it was the only animal job I knew <laughs> a vet or a zookeeper <laughs> when I was a tiny kid. And everyone said, oh, it's really difficult to be a vet. So I'm quite a stubborn person. So I was like, I'll show you. I'll become a vet. <laughs> um, so I did. But actually, I've um, in the last few years, especially, I've kind of revisited where I actually mm. came from, which is love of nature and wild animals and, and things um, and changed my work a little bit to allow me to do that um, as well as kind of um, vet consultancy. So yeah, I work kind of day job um, as a vet consultant and then I work uh, running Ealing Wildlife Group in West London, which is a, a local kind of community conservation group. 
Yeah, that's. I mean, that's amazing, and I know we've we've got it in the diary to do an episode about Elon Wildlife Group. But it is you're going to come and see some of our projects, right? I absolutely, <laughs> I'm buzzing to do so. But you've also you you've kind of taken your vet skill as a consultant vet to also be a consultant conservationist, I guess, because you seem to be working on a lot of projects and just being there on hand to kind of give you know give your a, a view or opinion or advice, really. Yeah, yeah, it's something I've just been passionate about all along, really. And I, as a youngster growing up, myself and my dad were members of Birdwatch Ireland and, and kind of got involved volunteering on certain conservation projects and things. So, yeah, just it's developed into something that we work quite closely with the local council and um, we lead on kind of, you know, advising them on how to kind yeah. of conserve habitats, improve habitats and things. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been a nice little um, organic development into something yeah. that like gives me a lot of joy and gets me out of the crazy world of consulting <laughs> with the vet, the pet owning public. <laughs> is it, fr- I mean, actually, Zoe, you must know this as well as a behaviourist, the two of you. I mean, I, if I feel it in my job, you two must. Do you not get so frustrated with some of the things, Zoe, you have to deal with from a behaviourist <laughs> and Sean, you have to deal with from a vet? Zoe, do you get like, it must like drive you mad. Yeah, I think the thing is, is in, yes. uh, how not to insult my clients. Yeah, the, I think I think anyone that thinks that dog training or or working with dog behaviour is a job for someone who's not a people person, mm. um, that is a big mistake to make. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of dog walkers that aren't particularly good people. People. I will on uh, my podcast stand there and say that is correct. <laughs> yeah, and they do that for a reason because they like animals more than they like people, and yeah. you can avoid people like I avoid you in the past. <laughs> Starting to get personal now, Zoe. <laughs> but um, I think I'm I'm astounded at how something that seems so common sense to me mm. is completely lacking in someone else, and how how often. People hear whatever they hear from wherever they hear it. Um, maybe at you know the Primrose Hill Puppy Club that they yeah. go to every morning at nine thirty, and they talk to the different other dog owners, and then they come back and they say, you know, I categorically am going to do do this with my dog. And I'm like, did you not think to even Google it? You yeah. know, like that, <laughs> yeah. that what this person yeah. is saying is is actually a common and reasonable thing to be doing with your dog. Um, so yeah, I find it, I do find it pretty, pretty nuts. Um, but you know, I do this every day. I've been doing it my whole life. I've been around animals since I was a baby. So, you know, I guess for, for people who do that all the time, it it makes a lot of sense. And we see a lot of different dogs and different reactions to things. And we can see the common denominators, but if you only have your dog or your cat or whatever you have, that's such a good point. You know, people don't necessarily have a view past that. Mm. Um, so especially with first-time dog owners because they view their dogs as, as their children and they treat them like children and they're not children. Yeah. <laughs> they're dogs. Yeah. They live in our world, peeps. Um, <laughs> Sean, what about you as a vet? Surely you must be like... Well, WTF. I frequently am. Yeah, yeah. I've got a, I've got a book in the making. I'm going to like, I'm going to release that book. Called Vets What the F***. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to release that book when I'm no longer doing any veterinary work. <laughs> Burn those yeah, exactly. They won't want me back after I release that book. No, um, as, as Zoe said, I think 
we can get a little bit in our own minds. You know, we're total experts, I guess, in what we do. We're we're dealing with scenarios all the time, like repeatedly and things like that. So it can be easy to get really frustrated with dog owners, pet owners in general, and just say, how did you not know this? Or why did you do it that way? But for them, it's often their first time. So I think, yeah, a a level of patience is needed to kind of say, do you know what? This person might not have realized that before or have have the kind of experience or knowledge we have. But yeah, it can get frustrating. And I think the big thing, and this is very much broad strokes and generalization. The big thing is a lot of people get pets kind of not for the wrong reasons, but they get pets without doing their research. They might get the wrong breed, you know, that's not suited to their lifestyle. They kind of mm. almost want to kind of, I guess, mold the pet into their life and they'll do things the way that's most convenient for them. And it's often not good for the pet or in this case, what we're going to talk about today, not good for the environment or for wildlife. But mm. that's the frustrating thing for me is that actually people haven't done their research and they're kind of doing the wrong thing because it's the easy way to do it. It's just there's so much and you can't really because this is what we say in our company like me and my team we, go, we can't blame people because it's so easy to get a dog mm. it's just so easy you could go out today and buy five and no, no yeah if you've got the money you can do it and i think that's where it's come up and we are so much from dogs for this world we want them to be perfect in a world that is that i struggle in. yeah yeah so, like if you're gonna think how is a dog gonna deal with buses driving past when they can make me jump or mopeds driving yeah. by? it's just all these things that we expect so much from them and the, the poor things are like bear with us and, yeah and we're <laughs> expecting more and more all the time you know they are becoming yeah. more like accessories but they're also becoming more like our human family members and when we humanize mm. them too much or kind of anthropomorphize and and kind of put our way of thinking on them we get it completely wrong you know yeah yeah a hundred percent um and so a question this is interesting because we're talking about dogs and wildlife but so the usual question i'd ask my guests here is name a nature highlight you've had in the last seven days now zoe again i don't know how much you are into nature but i will ask you have you had a nature highlight or just an outdoorsy highlight in the last seven days i have actually i thought about this um i have a slight comparison to make actually i i was recently in scotland it's a little longer than seven days ago that's fine um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's comparing it to something that happened in the last seven days. So I, I went to Scotland and I was absolutely desperate to see a red squirrel. And I am very much into nature. Um, growing up in New Zealand, it's one mm-hmm. of those things that is just around you all the time. Yeah. And, you know, walk, you hike and walk a lot. You don't see a lot of wildlife because they're all quite small. And, yeah, yeah. And timid hide animals a lot. as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but there is a lot of it, lots of bugs yeah and i was in scotland i was desperate to see a red squirrel i didn't see one which i was very disappointed about but on my last day in scotland i was walking to a lighthouse with the dogs and i saw a pod of dolphins uh, coming out of a river mouth going out to sea amazing yeah i mean in new zealand that's quite something that's quite common um to see but i hadn't seen it for a long time and i was i was pretty excited about it and then i came back to london and a few (laughs) days ago i saw a woodpecker like an actual like not just heard it or saw something that might be a woodpecker up in the trees, but I, I actually saw the whole thing and it was on the ground and then it flew to a tree and it was like peck, peck, peck. And I have to say that I was more excited about seeing that woodpecker <laughs> than I was when it's I saw it. was on dog. your doorstep. That's why. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or just, yeah. I just, I, I guess I've been looking, I hear them all the time, yeah. but I've never, ever actually seen one. And mm. it was just, you know, it, it just took me back to like the cartoons of Woody Woodpecker Yay. <laughs> and like the fact that I would always want to see one in real life. So I think that's probably my my biggest wildlife Was that on Hampstead Heath, 
for the, it was, the yeah. Oh, they're, they're, yeah. I saw one on Kenwood West Meadow today fly across, and then I saw a kestrel straight afterwards. Like this is a good bird day. <laughs> this is good, <laughs> good fly around. We're such we're such geeks. <laughs> we really are. Like uh, that's why my walks take so long. Um, Sean, what about you for nature highlight? Um, I was going to interject there first and say, actually, Ryan hates birds, Zoe, so that won't be too impressive. Do, for him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, honestly, Zoe, I made a comment a year ago about bo- birds being boring, and Jesus, <laughs> we all we all went come back. I might as well have supported Brexit on the show; it would have been less controversial. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but disclaimer: are I cool. don't. But woodpeckers are cool. Oh, they are. Woodpeckers are cool, especially if you see them for the first time, right? <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so Sean, go on. My nature, nature highlight. highlight. Um, am I allowed to mention two? One of them is very tiny, which was yesterday. Go on. Yesterday, I went to um, our Ealing Wildlife Group Costans Nature Reserve, and we've just excavated mm. the pond there. And yeah, nice. um, I went to collect some tools, and there was like a grey wagtail, a flock of goldfinches, and some greenfinches bathing in the new pond. And I was like, amazing. They've come already. They found it. You already. know, so that was That's pretty cool. Amazing. Pretty normal, but pretty cool to be like, we've created this yeah. community. And the other, yeah. the other big thing, I guess, in the last week and this week as well that's happening is we've been talking to Natural England about our application to yes. reintroduce beavers to Ealing. So we had a really good uh, conversation with them. And uh, fingers crossed, we're going to hear by the fingers end of crossed, the month. looking promising. Yeah nice oh, that's amazing that'll be that'll be epic i like it, it's going to open up so many opportunities hopefully for yeah, london yeah. hopefully oh it'll be epic come on natural england don't <laughs> this one up right um <laughs> we won't tag oh, good, them in that, but curse. you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> i was holding back um yeah oh god no don't okay. um so dogs and wildlife this is what we're talking about today it goes without saying just like us in a natural environment there is going to be disturbance but it's important to start with knowing what dogs can do or how they can cause conflict or disturbance in a natural environment. Because so many people don't consider this in the same way we don't consider it when we go for a walk. So, Sean, let's start with this question. With that, what kind of conflicts or what kind of disturbance are the kind of common things that we see dogs causing when they go out and can just run around in the natural environment? Yeah, yeah. So most people kind of, when you talk to them about this, they're like, oh, I never realised that was a thing or that that Mm. could happen. I mean, the biggest thing is um, if you look at dogs and what they are, they are a predator, all right? They're, you know, derived from the wolf and um, wildlife will see them as this thing is going to eat me if it gets too close or attack me, you know? Mm -hmm. So just the very presence of dogs in an area disturbs wildlife and puts wildlife on edge. And we talk, talk about like, you know, the effect of putting wolves back in the environment and the rewilding debate. It's like they create a landscape of fear. Well, actually dogs create a landscape of fear with wildlife as well. And especially vulnerable Mm -hmm. things that like, you know, birds nesting on the ground or, in the wintertime, flocks of birds feeding on the shoreline and things and there's dogs chasing them and stuff. That disturbance actually has knock on effects because not just your one dog doing it that day. It's lots and lots of dogs. So where you have yeah. density of dogs in sensitive habitats, you just get constant disturbance and fear. And then wildlife kind of moves on or doesn't breed mm. successfully and all these hidden effects. The other obvious one is like direct predation. Dogs can sometimes kill wildlife and that's the very obvious one. But it's the kind of indirect and subtle effects of dogs in a landscape that causes problems. That's why a lot of the uh, kind of NGOs and charities and things are saying, you know, we don't want dogs at all on our nature reserves. Um, And then so that's the kind of effects on wildlife itself. But then the effect on habitats as well. Um, Really, really important, you know, with dogs wandering kind of off paths or off places where we're allowed to walk into sensitive habitats, trampling vegetation, 
um, running through and disturbing again wildlife um, going about their daily business. Um, and I think, you know, the poo issue, um, which we can talk about in detail. Um, <laughs> we'll go into more detail with the poo later. <laughs> okay, let's pick that up later. <laughs> um, but yeah, so those are the kind of things. And also, you know, again, it's numbers now because, you know, pre-pandemic versus now, we went from 9 million dogs in the UK pre-pandemic to 12 and a half now is the recent estimate. So we, That's insane. And a lot of those people are first time dog owners because it's the first time in their mm. lives they've decided to take that step and go, now is as good a time as any, you know, working from home, we'll get a dog. And sorry to paint again, broad brush strokes, but a lot of the first time dog owners maybe haven't really thought through or aren't as experienced yeah. or aren't as, as knowledgeable about all these things that their dogs can do in the mm. environment, you know? Is there things like, because I think you and I might have had this brief discussion before, but obviously we treat our dogs as well with chemical based mm. things for fleas and ticks and stuff is that kind of how much does that get back into the environment when they're in there yeah that's really interesting actually because i think about two years ago a study came out looking at just one of the common drugs that we use to treat fleas mm. and pets called fipronil it's one of the common spot on liquids that you put on the yeah. on the skin on the back of the neck um and they found that uh 95 of rivers in england i think it was had um fipronil present in the river. So you're getting this wash off effect of dogs going into rivers and water courses. And obviously mm. it's in their skin. It's designed to kind of have a layer in their skin that kills the flea. Um, it washes off into the environment. And actually it's just as toxic, if not more toxic to aquatic invertebrates as it is to fleas. And that's actually with some of the breakdown compounds of the drug that are even more toxic to aquatic compound or aquatic organisms. And they found, I think it was 38 times the toxic level of this breakdown compound in these rivers on average. Actually, it's a big problem. And for vets and the whole mm. vet industry, you know, when this paper came out, we were all like, oh, if we were meant to be, you know, <laughs> one health advocates of like, you know, protecting people, animals and the environment. And yeah. we're doling out these drugs, you know, on a, say, mm. on a monthly basis, put this on your dog. Yeah. Actually, we have a big role to play here in damage to the environment mm -hmm. so um the kind of advice now is to try and steer away from um some of the spot-on treatments if you can and use an oral um oral antiparasitic yeah. drugs and things so i won't uh recommend any brands but talk to your own vet about absolutely. it absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah it is, is it is a big problem you know we're, we are causing huge issues with um just our own chemical use but chemical use on our pets as well is there much studies into like alternative ways because i know there's so much on the market and i know again we won't recommend anything it's best to talk to your vet through it but is there any research into going to alternative ways to treat dogs for fleas ticks and stuff i don't know how much there is um i always recommend crystals yeah crystal therapy will definitely you know. <laughs> pray, pray the crystals, parasite away um the breath of a newborn baby um yeah <laughs> there's lots of things on the internet that you know take with a pinch of salt guys just because yeah. you have a crystal on you also a pinch of salt a works. pinch of salt is also a good a good option yeah 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 just basically like cover your dog in a herbie marinade and you know yeah <laughs> um no look there's lots of tried and tested things there's not much proof for like any kind of the homeopathic yeah. or alternative remedies um that are out there um you get a lot of the kind of placebo effect or the kind of you know um confirmation mm. bias of well my dog has i've used this with my dog and he's never had fleas it's like I get in a car most days and 
I've never had a car crash, but I do believe they exist and it could happen tomorrow. <laughs> so your dog not having fleas is not proof of efficacy. Yeah. You know, Data so. is power, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, no, most of the prescription drugs are the ones that work. Even some of the prescription drugs that have been around a long time are starting to potentially um, see a bit of resistance from the fleas and things. So, um, yeah, right. you know, if you're using garlic or something like that, you know, there can be some therapies that are actually toxic alternative therapies that are toxic to dogs yeah so you need to be just really careful and i would say go with your vet's recommendation for a broad spectrum um antiparasiticide or um you know treat reactively rather than kind of prophylactically well that's yeah that's something we've done with our dog riley it's it's more like we we started to look at where we lived and we're like I, you know with all our dogs going out i was like when was the last time we had a tick on Hampstead heap i mean it happens mm. i'm not gonna say it doesn't happen but i was like honestly like it happens if it happens once a year it's like oh my god like yeah, yeah. so do we need to be doing this or is it just a spot check I, once a week i right? think we need to tailor our advice as vets we need to tailor our advice and we do you know i worked previously mm. worked in richmond near richmond park which is alive with ticks because of all the deer uh, there yeah exactly um yeah. and we had clients and dogs um get lyme disease from ticks and things so we were in a high tick risk area we always recommend a tick cover mm. but yeah, if you're not, then maybe just be vigilant for ticks be and sensible. not be using Absolutely. not be using kind of unnecessary um, drugs and medications. Then the argument yeah. comes to you know now my dog has an infestation of fleas and I wish I had done it preventively because <laughs> I'm dealing with <laughs> yeah. three months of like trying to get rid of these bloody fleas in my house. So uh, I'd be like, bro, if you've suddenly got an infestation of fleas, that's on. Oh, you. it happens quickly though. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people does yeah, it. A lot of people bring their pet in and they're like, well, she's scratching or whatever, and you're like, she's like riddled with fleas and they don't oh believe God. you they're like no she's not my dog doesn't have fleas how dare you and it's like it can happen very quickly a female flea lays you know do you know what? i'm a paranoid dog owner though if, if riley breathes a bit weird i'm checking her gums to see what her blood pressure is like i'm like what's yeah, the matter yeah, what's yeah. the don't die <laughs> I'm, like, I'm that owner no it's surprising it's surprising how quickly they can explode so yeah it's yeah. a tricky one my my advice is to move away from the spot on ones if your dog is going in rivers and streams and ponds yeah don't be using a topical um spot on uh flea prevention use one of the oral kind of tablet formulations nice yeah. so zoe so now we know kind of like sean said that we've got the disturbance of dogs um just running through the environment their presence and stuff like that but you will know this from your customers, I assume as well, or your clients or past clients or whatever, but there's a misconception that dogs need to be off the lead all the time. I, I believe it's a misconception and that they can't have a, a well-enriched or exercised walk unless they're off lead running around. Is this true? And if not, what else can dog owners be doing to help get them an enriched and exercised dog walk without being off lead? Yeah, I think, you know what, we're in really incredibly lucky here in the UK because there's so few restrictions on where your dog can go and where they can be off lead. And that's just not the case in other countries in the world. And I think a lot of UK dog owners actually take that really for granted here. Yeah. Um, and I think we've probably all had experiences of dog owners who refuse to call their dogs away when asked. And often you get that response of, oh, my dog's fine. He can do what he wants. <laughs> um, yep. And that's that's the dead wrong answer. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone asks you to call your dog, you call your dog, no questions asked. And then you can ask questions if you're like, well, why did you want me to put my dog on lead? Yeah. Maybe because my child is terrified of dogs or, you know, my dog is going to bite your dog if it comes near him, that kind of thing. So I think I think that is quite a big uh, problem here that, that, you know, in the States, for example, dogs have to be on the lead all the time. Um, they have very limited places where they can go and be off lead. 
Uh, the same in New Zealand, uh, mm. you know, dogs go everywhere with their owners because we all drive, but they're not allowed on any public transport. They're not allowed in restaurants uh, like they are here. So I think it because we're so lenient here with uh, the dog rules, yeah. people just really take it for granted. And so that means that, you know, their dogs are just doing whatever they want. You know, there's there's no one to call them on it as such um, officially. So people just, yeah, just go on letting their dogs do what they want. And then they believe that their dog actually can't gain the right amount of exercise or the enrichment that it needs because it's not, if it's on lead, it's not getting that complete run out and being exhausted. Your dog should not be exhausted. (laughs) It should be, (laughs) it should be tired and happy, but it shouldn't be exhausted. So I I kind of compare that with like a, a a two types of days of travel, for example. So Mm -hmm. let's say you're traveling to Japan and on one hand, you make all your connections, you get upgraded to business class, you sleep all the way on the flight, you get there and you're tired because you've, you know, you've had a day of travel, but everything went well. So, you know, you're tired, you're happy you've arrived. And on the other hand, you have a day where everything goes wrong. You miss all your connections, your luggage gets delayed, you get sat by the toilet next to a crying <laughs> child. And, you know, it's it's literally like the worst thing that you can possibly imagine yeah. in terms of a day of travel. And you are exhausted. And in both cases, the outcome kind of looks the same, right? You're kind of passed out on the bed in the hotel, but it's a very different feeling. And that can be the difference when you're exercising your dog to where you're throwing the ball constantly for a dog, which I'm sure Sean will back me up on this. is not necessarily great uh, for a dog's physical health. For a puppy, it's not great because the body is still developing. For an adult dog, it's not great because the joints and the bones are a little bit more fixed. So Mm -hmm. the impact of sudden starts and stops and and careening along the ground isn't so great for their bones and and their uh, their, uh, musculoskeletal system. And I think people often don't understand that at all, um, even if they've owned many dogs in the past, unless they've had direct experience with it. So if you think it's for your health of your dog, then that's not necessarily a good Uh, reason to say that your dog should be off lead all the time Um, however for me personally and as a trainer I do believe the better trained your dog is the more freedom it can have Mm -hmm. so if you have a really well-trained dog and you know its threshold limits for uh, you know listening to cues and commands including in an emergency for example um, can you reliably get your dog back under any circumstance and you're really observant of where your dog is then there shouldn't be much reason that your dog shouldn't be able to be off lead in a green space, provided there are no on lead restrictions, for example, in a nature reserve or something like that. However, equally, there is no reason that a calm dog that engages in neutral behaviors should be able to not be able to enjoy a walk on lead, for example, and still get exercise and enrichment. And actually, I always recommend to my clients that they clip their dogs on and off lead throughout their walk yeah, when they're out so and about true. with their dog and every time and for varying lengths of time so you might clip the dog on clip the dog off leave it on for five minutes leave it on for 30 seconds and so on and so forth and every time you do that you should positively reinforce your dog that could mean a food reward that's probably the easiest a toy reward for example if you can have a toy that you carry with you touch but most importantly play actually which is vastly undervalued as a reward for dogs with their human. Um, If you do that, your dog will never avoid going on the lead. It will never know when you're about to leave the park because (laughs) when you get that lead out, (laughs) 
um, and in an emergency, if you need to get your dog on, it also won't avoid that leash. Yeah. So if there is wildlife or a reason that you can see that it needs to go on, but you can't catch a bloody dog, then you've got a big problem. Um, so that's something, you know, it is true your dog can get enough exercise uh, for sure. But I think in a lot of those circumstances, that means that the human needs to be a bit more involved mm-hmm. um, and have a bit more of a plan in terms of how they're going to keep their dog enriched and exercised. And also, most importantly, you need to involve your dog's nose. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. So, <laughs> um, you know, I think in order for those things to happen, you have to have a, a few kind of ground uh, a basis of ground training. Um, so, for example, if you're going to keep your dog on a lead and walk it in areas, then you need good loose lead training. Mm-hmm. Um, it is no fun to be yanked from pillar to post by your dog um, all over the place. It's not much fun for your dog if your dog's wearing a collar instead of a harness. Also, mm-hmm. please, please, please put your dogs on harnesses and not collars, people. <laughs> um, you know, the dog is being choked as it's trying to pull you around as well. And it's a dog's natural instinct to pull against resistance. Mm-hmm. So if you've never trained your dog to have good loose lead training and impulse control, then of course you want to let your dog off because you don't want to be being dragged everywhere yeah, exactly. around. It's a park. frustration buildup, isn't it? Exactly. You know, so I think that's really important. And then there's lots of other things that you can do. For me, it's all about the dog's nose. Dogs yeah. love to sniff out everything, which most people do know, but they don't realize how important it is to a dog and how much it actually is equal to off-lead exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, I did read somewhere so <laughs> that like 20 minutes of scent work for a dog is actually the equivalent of an hour's off-lead exercise. I'd have to look up where I where I read that, <laughs> but I just I remember it sticking out so clearly to me and it was a bit of a light bulb moment yeah. um, because it's their most primary sense. It tires them out. It really does. Like Riley is a, such a high energy dog, but on the hot weather, if we hide the ball, tennis ball in the living room for 15, 20 minutes, after doing that, she's like, <sighs> and asleep, she'll just lay down. So it clearly, yeah. it does work. It's really rewarding and for them also, as well, isn't it? It's, like, it's so rewarding. Yeah, yeah it really yeah. is. Um, and that's the thing, finding your what your dog finds the most rewarding is really mm. important. So different, like I think you were talking before about, you know, different breeds of dog um, mm. and how you choose which dog you have. Maybe you haven't done your research and maybe you have a dog that you didn't really think clearly about what you were Mm -hmm. getting. Um, But look into what breed characteristics that dog has and try and fulfill that within them, their genetic component of what they are built and bred to do. And if you involve that in your training, then you're going to be magic, particularly. But smell for dogs is universal. All dogs love to sniff stuff out. That's just the way it is. So you know, but there are particular types of breeds that are even more like basset hounds and sort of hound dogs and, yeah, and things like that, that <laughs> which have an incredibly higher amount of ability to smell things out um, than, you know, other particular breeds. Um, but activities that you could do with that is you can teach your dog to scent and search things out, which can be done on lead, obviously. And it's a really lovely training progression for the human. It's pretty easy to train. You can do it at home. You can do it on lead. You can do it off lead. You know, and essentially, you've taught your dog search and rescue, even yeah. if all it's doing is rescuing a stuffed sock from a behind a tree. You yeah. know, like it's still a great thing for your dog to do. Hmm. Um, and that can definitely be done anywhere. What else? If you're less inclined to do training, you can do things like scatter feeds. Ryan, I know that you do those. I love a scatter uh, feed. It calms yeah. everything down. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It keeps your dog close. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you can spread it out in a wider range as your dog gets better at doing it. They sniff around, they find the little treats in the grass. It's a good way, even if they're off lead, to keep them close by without yeah. having to, to call them in. And it calms everything down. Only if you don't have a dog present that has a food resource guarding issue. Yeah. I would say as well, for people listening, that you do not need to use high value for that. Like we use carrot no, no. and apple and stuff, something that's cheap and easy and yeah. healthy to use. And also if you do leave any behind, if they don't find it, the birds just take it. Like, <laughs> but yeah, the crows, say, right? Mate, the crows, the crows or the parakeets, <laughs> but they'll come down and take it. Yeah. Um, and you could find a log or a tree and shove little bits of uh, treats and the dog can climb over it. They can go all around it and find all the treats on the tree. I mean, that's, you know, uh, for that sort of thing. Um, for the more sporty types, you can do, you can try your hand at drawing. Um, so drawing is, is dog sports that involve you attaching your dog to yourself, usually around the waist, mm. sometimes to your equipment. So you can either run with your dog like that. And it's usually a special type of harness. Uh, that attaches a bit further back, uh, has a bungee kind of lead to absorb shock. And you can either run or cycle with your dog or, you know, for a slightly more accessible thing for for Mm. dog and pet owners, you can take part in things like the Battersea Muddy Dog Challenge, which is a 5K run to get your dog muddy, you get muddy, you know. So those are all... (laughs) It gives me anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) But those are all things you can do on lead um, and keep your dog enriched focused on you and training the best thing about training is your dog will be enriched because they love to do training because you're focused on them they're getting treats uh or play or whatever you you want to reinforce your dog with and they're getting your time and your focus I think that's the best. That's one thing that we really tell a lot of people is that every walk should be a training session for you, even if you're not fully aware of it or the dog's not. Because like you said, all those things you've just mentioned from whether it's play or scatter feeds or whatever you're doing to enrich, it just builds that bond between you. The more you're involved with it and less on your phone and just chucking a ball, the the bigger bond you get with your dog. And you just, you know, that is probably one of the best bits of it. And then the recall will just improve because they love you, right? The more they love you, the more they're going to come back to you. So it's, it really does work. And it's, it's whether that needs to be done on a lead and then slowly like, you know, get the longer lead until they're really good with it, especially when they're younger, if they're pups and stuff, you see the difference so quick. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm just sort of currently working up a little bit of, of stuff on, um, uh, predation substitute training mm. um which is really interesting to me because it's not something that's covered a lot no. um, and it's actually cooperatively hunting <laughs> things with your dog and allowing them to use the parts of the predatory motor pattern yeah um which uh is essentially to find the prey eye the prey stalk the prey chase it bite it kill it consume it right a motor pattern cannot be trained away it, it is inherent yeah, and it's marked a hugely internal rewards. So each part of that process, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to get a little bit technical now. <laughs> but each part of that process is marked by dopamine, little spikes mm. of dopamine. And so each part of it is rewarding internally for the dog. So it's not even about the actual external thing that's happening or even rewarding it with food or anything else, but the internal circumstances for the dog are changing as that's happening. Mm. And for different breeds, different parts of that motor pattern are really important. So you can actually combine that into your training and give them the chance, if you've got a dog that has a high prey drive, for example, and is maybe not safe to have around wildlife or around other dogs even, Mm. you can actually have it on lead and allow it to 
take part in those parts of the predatory mode of that are safe, which is obviously yeah. finding the prey, looking at the prey and stalking the prey. That's pretty much where it has to yeah. stop. So it's like feeding it, but not encouraging it to the end. Exactly. And the yeah. reward is not food from you, but the reward is actually the, the stalking of the prey. So when yeah. they look at the prey, they look back at you, you actually offer them to do it again and say, do you want to keep stalking the prey? And then the dog chooses to come away from it because it's done. Wow. And that's where you get this really, really lovely thing because most prey, when if you ever see a dog in, in, yeah. in full prey drive, it is not going to leave that for love nor money. Oh, it's manic. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, unless you physically remove it from that situation. Yeah. I see dogs at Primrose Hill all the time in October-ish time when the squirrels are down on the ground a lot. And they're a little bit sluggish because they've been eating all those sweet chestnuts and yep. they get a little bit punch drunk. <laughs> um, and I know a dog that was up there for three and a half hours. The, the owner couldn't catch it. She had to go home, leave the dog, go, get a chicken carcass out of her bin, <laughs> wow. put it on a string. <laughs> Imagine being at that point where oh, I'm just going to have to go home. <laughs> Dinner's waiting in the oven. <laughs> Squirrels are like crack for dogs. Is what we're yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've never known a dog does not see red mist no. with a squirrel. Some are better if time. you do right, the right tone of voice, they'll come yeah. back. <laughs> but some you learn. Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash Into the Wild pod. The link is in the write-up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. We, I wanted to come back onto this as well because we said we would. And this is something that no matter who I've spoken to in the industry has can have a different opinion, strangely. But Sean, we'll start with you. Dog, pick it or flick it. Go on. Pick it. <laughs> but you'll be surprised the amount of people that still like that. Ah, no, 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 no. I, so why? Well, yeah, I mean, I feel quite strongly about this one because everyone tends to just think of themselves in isolation, um, especially yeah. dog owners, I think, tend to think, I'm a responsible dog owner and I do everything right and maybe the odd time I do this, but... You know, we don't realize the kind of cumulative effect of, of things we're doing. So, yeah, yeah. Dog poo, like how much dog poo are UK dogs producing, right? There was, there's kind of a generally accepted um, figure, and it's a conservative estimate that when we had the 9 million dogs pre pandemic, the <sighs> estimate was that we had 1,000 tons of dog poo produced per day. So, if you scale <laughs> that up to 365 days, 365,000 yeah. tons of dog poo in a year. I must pick up half of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good on you. Feels yeah. like it. And then, you know, that's a conservative estimate. Then we will go up to 12,500, you know, add another third again. We're dealing with scaling up a little bit, half a million tons of dog poo Jesus in a year now Christ. being produced by UK dogs. If, you know, half of the people flick it, then that's a huge amount of waste going into mm. the environment. And sometimes it's going on to sensitive habitats that really yeah, where yeah. nutrient levels in the soil and things really count. You know, if you've got rare species mm. of plant that are on kind of low nutrient soils and things and dog walkers are in there every day of the year and pe half the dog walkers, walkers are flicking their dogs <coughs> into the mm. vegetation, 
that's going to change that habitat over time. So people yeah. don't realize that. There's also the kind of um, health risks involved with it, you know, not just to other dogs, but to people and to wildlife as well. You know, dogs can carry diseases that will affect native wildlife and vice versa. Yeah. So we don't want to be giving, you know, putting that into the environment. Dogs, sorry to say, they're not a natural part of our ecosystem, so yes. they shouldn't be impacting <laughs> yeah. on it. You know, yeah. we're already impacting on our ecosystems massively. Everything's in free fall. We're all kind of depressed and anxious about the fact that, you know, one in seven plants and animals in the UK is faced with extinction, which is a crazy mm. statistic. So as dog owners, you know, most dog owners are animal lovers and, you know, in touch with nature as well. Otherwise, you might not have a dog. But if dog owners aren't taking responsibility for their dog's impact on their local yeah. environment, then we're in a really bad state because we're just adding to the problems, yeah. you know. So, yeah, I'm definitely uh, in the picket camp. And if you don't if you don't want to pick up your dog's <coughs> don't get a dog. <laughs> yeah, that's actually something. If you if you're funny with <coughs> just don't don't put it in your life. <laughs> Like, and then it's part of having a dog. Dare I raise the the issue of cats? You know, cat owners often, yeah, exactly, yeah. you know, Jesus. one of the motivations for getting a cat, I guess, as opposed to a dog, is oh, it looks after itself. It's much more independent. It's yeah. not such a tie. Your cat's out there <laughs> in the environment too. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't yeah. see it, you know. Um, exactly, and I think something because again, Zoe, I wonder if you have this because my next question to you, Zoe, is going to be, well, actually, I'll say this first: is something we say to our customers a lot is. Our customers are very conscious about the environment. And then one of the reasons why a lot of our customers come to us is because we don't use vans. You know, we are conscious. We donate to local animal charities and we use compostable everything. And they're very conscious about the amount of plastic they use. And, and we have to remind people, it's 2022. There's compostable everything nearly now. And there's a huge independent market of compostable poo bags that... If you are conscious, obviously, yeah, like you said, with the scale of dog waste available, it's kind of like a you know, you know, clutching at straws. But if you can use bags that are just not going to be toxic to the environment, or if they're burnt, they're not going to release toxins, then even better. But it's still a case of if you pick it up and bag it, put it in a bin. Don't leave it behind. Don't hang it on a tree. You've got to take it away. You've got to put it in the correct um, dog waste bin. But Zoe, for you, do you a lot of the people you deal with do you see a connection between dog owners and people that are conscious about biodiversity and the environment or do you see there's still a big gap with that i mean well funnily enough i actually did some r&d uh into developing eco dogwear brand um, a couple of years ago uh, and i did a market survey on exactly that um, mm. how conscious are people about the environment, especially obviously as a consumer and when yeah. they're thinking about purchasing a product for their for their dog. I have to say that the results were quite surprising. Um, oh, well, they were surprising way? to me. Um, <laughs> in the negative, I'm afraid. Um, mm, I would have thought so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people could not say whether any of the things that they'd already purchased for their dog had any kind of green credentials in the first place. Right. So they had obviously no idea where the, the product came from what was involved in it, you know, there's mm. all sorts of things outside of the environment, like human slavery and 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 really poor working conditions yeah. and, and things like that that it should be considered as well. What was really interesting for me, though, was as a general consensus, people were interested in the environment um, in terms of the products that they were purchasing. However, that criteria came very far down the list in comparison to, unfortunately, number one was style or form what <laughs> uh the next was function which i understand actually function enough. is yep. really important when it comes to yep. stuff that you're using for your dog 
it has to be long wearing it has to be hard wearing yeah. it has to be comfortable it, you know that makes sense uh and price it came below price although a lot of people were willing to pay more if something had more eco-friendly yeah. connotations but that just means connotations not necessarily that it is eco-friendly that you know because you actually have to if you have an eco product it has to be eco-friendly from all sides mm. not just an appearance of being that yeah um so people were willing to spend a bit more money on that but it certainly was not the deciding factor and if it compromised the econess of it compromised the the form of it mm-hmm. then they weren't interested so i i found that how'd you beat <laughs> fashion <laughs> yeah yeah exactly pay no fashion yeah. but um i mean in terms of biodiversity and the environment i mean i think the local environment for sure yeah. dog owners i've had lots of conversations with dog owners because anyone who spends a decent portion of their day-to-day life 365 mm. days of the year outside in their local environment you see the patterns the weather mm. patterns changing over time yeah um, you do you know the big one is litter i have to yeah. say i've had a lot of conversations about litter and dog owners i do see them picking up going with a bag when they take their dog out and picking up litter that humans have left behind but i think that's because it directly affects their dog and them mm. um you know i certainly pick up whatever litter my dogs pick up and then i put it in the pocket <laughs> yeah. i have a i have a specific handy. pocket for things <laughs> that for things that dogs shouldn't have yeah um i also pick up one community poo per day uh at least we do as well because then That's, if someone says to me you can't be seeing it always like well if we've left one we've picked one up as well <laughs> exactly so if i miss one and i can't find I can, one yeah i pick up an extra one in addition exactly. to my community poo and i ask mm. all of my my walkers to do the same. Yeah, same um and yeah and then i don't know biodiversity uh to be honest i i mean i've never talked to anyone uh mm. who walks who's out walking their dog about biodiversity but I think it would almost be seen as a negative by dog owners because the more biodiverse a park is, it's certainly maybe not in terms of flora, but if there's more wildlife, more yeah. animals, more insects, generally dogs have to be kept away from those Yeah, you're things. right. Yeah. So, you know, if there was more of it, people would probably be complaining about it. Yeah. So I, I would actually think that, you know, it's all about ease for clients and and mm. you know obviously the safety of their animal and you know having to worry about the safety of other animals yeah and if you have that attitude that the dog needs to be off lead all the time and can do what it wants then you've got a real problem if you're looking yeah, at that's... things like biodiversity and and quantity of animals mm. you know wildlife that are around in the local parks and things so, that's, a, that's a really good point i didn't even think about that like you know yeah it's <laughs> Obviously, this is maybe my audience on here will be like, oh, what? But you're right. The more biodiversity out there, the more wildlife, the more restrictions we put on dog owners. And ultimately, we care about what affects us. And if it does do that, and like you said, with those attitudes of my dog should be off lead and it needs or that. Again, I use the word misconception of my dog needs to be off lead running around. It's like that's going to cause that conflict. Sean, I'm going to ask you now. Mm, yeah, we have a re- <laughs> What the hell do we do to bridge that gap? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, we have a really interesting um, example of this. I think it was last year um, mm. where there's this one pond near one of the local primary schools, nice wild area behind a school and um, between kind of meadows and river and um, yeah. tons and tons of frogs spawn in this pond every spring. And the dogs are going into it and literally like churning it up, you yeah. know, and um, 
we talked about it on Ealing Wildlife Group on social media and I posted it quite hesitantly, like did a little video when I was there <laughs> and posted it on some of the normal general interest neighborhood Facebook forums. And I thought I'm either going to get absolutely annihilated here by dog owners or let's see, it's kind yeah. of a little experiment. And you know what? It was a very, very positive um, oh, reaction. Awesome. Now, the ones who were annihilating me behind closed doors maybe might not have posted, but there was very much an attitude of, oh, I never even thought my dog going yeah. in that pond would have an effect on the frogs or the dragonfly larvae or whatever. But just explaining it to them and saying, you know, that pond is a really, really precious little diverse ecosystem with lots going on under the surface and, you know, 20 dogs going in and churning it up and making it muddy every day means it's mm. no longer useful to all of the food chain and, and food web. And people were like, mm. oh, OK, cool. Most people were like, I didn't even think of that. I'll definitely um, say it to other dog owners if I see it and things. So it was actually just giving people enough information and, and making them think. Most of them reacted quite well to that. Yeah. Now, there were a few that um, kind of got a bit argy-bargy about it. And another pond issue came up where one of the ponds the council had kind of cordoned off with some chestnut paling fencing and said no dogs allowed in this pond. And there were a few people like very vocal and up in arms about that. And it was like that pond had water rolls in it once upon a time. But dogs going in and out, in and out, in and out, destroying the bankside vegetation, churning up the water, you know, basically mm -hmm. very little lives there now. And people were like, but we need a pond for dogs to go in. And my argument would be, Do, does your dog really need to go in a pond? <laughs> I don't think your dog does need to go in. I don't think that's a biological need or a behavioral need for a dog to go plunge around in a pond. And 20 yeah. dogs after him to go plunge in a pond. Exactly. Yeah. Like, so there was kind of a discussion of the council should be providing a sacrificial pond that's okay for dogs if they're going to cordon off other ponds. So it was kind of, a, a, I guess, a few different groups of dog owners. One or two mm -hmm. just didn't want to be told at all where they could and couldn't walk their dog. Um, in a similar meadow, like the other side of the railway line, we have Skylarks breeding. And we're trying to say yeah. all dogs on lead in this meadow, like don't let them go off the paths at least if they're, on, if they're not on lead. And some people are just like, that's not convenient for me. I don't want to be told what to do. So you do get a real cross spectrum of people. All sec yeah. all sectors of society have dogs. You know, you get the eco-conscious ones and the biodiversity conscious ones. But general public, you know, um, that has a dog, maybe it hasn't registered on, you know, their dog's impact yet. And I think it is a case yeah. of having to having to educate, but doing it gently and doing it with empathy. Like I started that video, I remember being like, Hey guys, I'm a vet and a wildlife conservationist. And here's where these two worlds are colliding, you know, love seeing dogs lolloping around in a muddy puddle or a yeah. pond. But also we do need to think that these ponds are few and far between, especially in urban areas. Mm -hmm. And our wildlife is clinging on in them. Do you fancy like maybe, you know, doing it in a paddling pool back home or, you know, restricting your dog? Because actually your dog doesn't need to be there. The frogs do. Mm -hmm. I think there's such, like you said, it's that word need, isn't it? It's, it's people for thinking it's a need rather than it's, well, it's just, you're just allowing it to. There's always ways to, like Zoe said with behavior training or just like, you know, bonding with your dog, there's always ways to mitigate against what the dog is doing. Even if it is a, a warmer day and you're trying to get your dog cool and keep cool, it's like, well, stick to shade then, walk at a different time, give them water, get a cool invest, all these kind of things that can help you manage this rather than, like you said, churn up a yeah. local wildlife. Yeah. Market. And I think as well, like empowering the dog owner or dog walking community to to mm. kind of take the lead on this actually does really work. Yeah. So I was listening to um 
Jake Fines, he's written a book lately. He mm. manages an estate up in Norfolk and he was saying they had big problems with dogs um, and wading birds or shoreline birds like ring plovers and little terns and things on one section of beach. And they actually, what they did quite cleverly, I guess, is they did a public consultation with dog walkers to get their views oh. first. And then they sort of did a, a information evening to kind of bring dog owners in and talk to them about the consultation. And then they asked dog owners to actually police it themselves. And then gradually they found empowering the dog owners to realize the problem, own the problem and police it themselves had a massive, massive difference. So they had acres of beach to walk yeah. on and they left this one section and it was very rare that then a dog walker went on to. And if they did, other dog walkers said, oh, can you sorry, can you not walk your dog there? Because yeah. there's really endangered birds breeding at this time of year. But the rest of the beach is for you. So we found that as well. If you put signs up and just ask dog owners. This is a really mm -hmm. sensitive habitat. Would you mind um, keeping your dog out of this area? Um, you know, a lot of them will comply with that because they're animal lovers at the end of the day. And yeah, yeah they do. And, and like you both said, like, there's there's an essence of people haven't thought about it. Or yeah. it, it's, it, if you, you know, we can all say signs are so easy to say and so many people ignore signs. But I do think there's an emotional use there of saying whether it was this is a frog breeding ground this time of year please be sensitive to this and do not let your dog in the water i i would struggle especially where in my local area would imagine many people would go nah, the frogs depends, it depends like, what you put on I if you put don't... on a cute you know uh, cute water bowl you might be better exactly. um but if, <laughs> yeah that's a good point actually if you get, say there's mermaids in yeah. there or if you put on a skylark all those bird haters like you ryan would be like yeah whatever <laughs> <laughs> go on riley go go um no it's i think sometimes using emotion with that kind of stuff is it, well, it's not really using emotion. It's just saying the facts, but it is saying, you know, this is a habitat. We fenced it off, but always explaining why. Yeah, people like, get angry Zoe, if you'll they don't know, know why. Exactly. And Zoe, you'll know on Hampstead Heath, as soon as there's the algae in the ponds, the, the fences are up and there's a sign explaining why and people understand. And because it affects their dog, they keep them back. So I'm wondering whether there's a communication thing there where it's just needed from both sides a bit more. So the wildlife side explaining why and the and maybe even shared wider with dog NGOs as well. I don't know what you guys think about that, but I don't see it much from like the Dogs Trust or certainly not the Kennel Club or anything sharing anything from a wildlife side. Zoe, do you ever see any of that? Actually, in Regent's Park, there is one recommendation I would have to all those organisations if they are going to put up signs is actually to make the sign really small. And that sounds kind of weird, yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but at Regent's Park, they they've got this little kind of mound of dirt that's probably about like maybe fifteen meters long, mm. and it's gr they've grown kind of like wildflowers on it, mm. and there's this really tiny tiny sign, but there's a lot of writing on it. It's quite bright, and the first time that sign went up there, I literally was like, "Oh, what's that?" And I, I went over and I, it's really low to the ground as well. And I actually had to like crouch down and get really, really low to be able to read what it said. And it had this really lovely like little blurb about solitary bees. Yeah. And it actually explained that like 95% of, of bees are actually solitary and don't live in hives mm. and they have nowhere to go basically. Like they need protecting more than the bees that come from hives because mm. they don't have anywhere to live. And it was I just thought it was absolutely brilliant because over time I've seen lots of people go and crawl up to me and try and read this incredibly. That's an amazing bit of advice. No one's ever going to think of it. <laughs> it's like reverse psychology. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't it's read like, this. It's like, it's like, this is tiny, you can't read it. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
and, and it's actually pretty amazing. It's like having a little tiny bit of writing on your T-shirt that just, you have to get really close and it says, <laughs> off nosy. <laughs> <laughs> I love like, this. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. That that for me is, um, that's probably the only thing I've seen that actually had a really good explanation and actually made mm. me really, well, also I thought, well, if there are bees there, I really don't want to let my dogs run around on it anyway, because obviously they might get stung. Yeah, safety point. So yeah. it's a pretty good incentive to keep them away from it. Of course, I have one or two dogs that just think it's the absolute bee's knees <laughs> to go and like yeah. play on this little mound of, of dirt but luckily they you know they're pretty good and come back but they, you get they that like side to... eye from dogs going i'm not allowed over here you're like, no you're not you're <laughs> i'm not am i like don't, <laughs> don't be it today i told you at the beginning not today yeah exactly um, it's, yeah that's interesting. I, I think that's the big thing. I think for me is, and Hampstead Heath are good with it. I will say my local uh, green space and other green spaces around. But if there's an area sectioned up, it's for conservation and it says it. But I do think there's a bit more mainstream communication, if that makes sense. What I'm saying is is less formal, more broad with your communication. Make it educational. Like you said, solitary bees is so specific and that's also educational. That's going to teach someone something if they read it as well. And it's having that level and it's difficult to get that line but once you do get it i think that's the trick i think is is making the communication more widely accepted among more people i never thought anything about small signs i love that i think that needs, I'm, I'm taking <laughs> that to, to the next one. ealing wildlife group meeting yeah <laughs> make I loads of tiny guys. signs everywhere <laughs> <laughs> it's so specific i love it or actually the other thing uh, in scotland i saw there was um signs where they had a post that had a gap and then like a street mm. sign that folded out so in order to read what was on the sign you actually had to pull the the little uh kind of street sign up and then you could read it which meant people were like oh i wonder what that says why is there a broken street sign but it yes, looks like you can idea. yeah and so you know we we opened every single one and it was a little blurb about what you know well, we were looking for red squirrels and, you know, all the little signs had, had something about this is where red squirrels hang out. So we were sort of set there, you know, or a certain type of bird or, or something like that yeah. or about the, like, the geography of the area. And so things like that that are interactive, which would, you know, parents would encourage their children to go and interact with those things. I think that's something that maybe could be explored by by some of those things like the Dogs Trust or the NGOs that can you know help in that kind of vein in terms of conservation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I'm big, big on board with that from a communication point of view. It just makes sense. Um, so usually what we do here is the last question of the podcast, I would ask them about nature, but I'm going to spice it up and ask you each a separate question, starting with you, Sean. Lastly, if you could tell someone to do one thing for nature or try something in experience in nature what would you say hmm. um i think it's getting involved on a local very local level um mm. i think joining a local nature group or wildlife conservation group or just going and friends of you know a green space or something like that mm. and going and getting active and doing something if you can you know for your local environment because we're all i guess probably listening to this podcast we're all a bit like oh the world is burning <laughs> yeah. how do i get off and yep. it's all too big and huge and overwhelming and you know mm. actually when you get out with like-minded people and just do something on a very local level for the environment for nature for biodiversity whatever it is um you do come away with that feeling you know 
a sense of accomplishment or a sense that you have mm-hmm. done something active, um, a sense of like shared worry and anxiety because you've talked about things with other people who are thinking similarly. So it it does wonders. And I've seen that firsthand with Ealing Wildlife Group, you know, people who yeah. don't have a clue and are kind of like, um, I'm interested in conservation. Can I come on a volunteer event? It's like, yeah, more the merrier. Yeah, do and it. And like we get, you know, we get 20, 30, 50 people sometimes turning up for things and wow. they all go home beaming, like with a big smile on their face. And they've actually seriously contributed to to practical work that we couldn't do without them you know yeah so i'd say yeah get involved volunteer um you know even if you if you're not kind of um able-bodied to go and you know get into a pond and clear vegetation or whatever like there's other things that Mm. you can do to volunteer yeah so i think volunteering would be it amazing and zoe for you lastly if you could give dog owners one bit of fab advice because i'm really hoping this episode has got a bit of a crossover with nature people and we're going to get a few dog owners that usually listen to into the world hi if you are hello Um, but zoe if you could give (laughs) hello welcome (laughs) welcome to the so if you could pass on one bit of fab dog walking advice to help people manage their dog on a dog walk what would you what would you say stay off your phone yes <laughs> um you know be present for your dog be mm. present for the environment around you i think just about every single negative thing that could happen on a walk um could be prevented by you the human mm. um you know be observant of your dog's location be observant of its interest or proximity to to things mm. in its immediate environment and that could be you know, other dogs, it could be humans, it could be wildlife, um, it could be areas that clearly, you know, fragile and, and dogs shouldn't be uh, trampling around in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ultimately, you're much more likely to experience that absolute sense of joy that your dog has when it's out and about in yeah. nature. It's the sense of joy that I have and I get to have every single day because the only reason I have my phone out when I'm out with the dogs is to take pictures of them Um, (laughs) and I'm watching them through the camera lens. But other than that, I do not use my phone. And, you know, I think that that's, I mean, obviously I'm paid to, to, to be present, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, it really does. It's, it's huge. And the Mm. joy that you watch in your dog as it, as it frolics and plays and sniffs and whether it's on lead or off lead, um, is just a sense of joy that I think people have, tended to lose about nature mm-hmm. and and it's one of the great things yeah so stay off your phone <laughs> i like that bit of advice for both sides of things to be honest it works for your dog it also works if you're just on your own in nature just get off your phone and just be present like you said be present yeah. in it and it is something we've said on the podcast many times before but with dogs as well like you said if you're looking at them through a screen fantastic get some great pictures of your dog out and about and enjoying yourself but yeah just that presence can really really change everything well that discussion was beautiful but not over this discussion will go on for years to come i'm sure as things grow and change um if you one of the listeners want to ask a further question you might be sat there going but i want to know more about that just tweet us in you know our social medias just tweet us any questions and we'll try and get the answers to you or keep the conversation going because it is a complex one and we like to open discussion everywhere but to my guests sean and zoe thank you so much for coming on and sharing your diverse knowledge and um, interest in this topic so thank you very much for being on the show thank you thanks for, thanks for having Ryan, us you need to do cats next oh jeez the cat cat owners i'm scared <laughs> I've been holding holding off doing it for my podcast. I'm not not touching cats. Dogs, I'm fine, but cat owners. Or horse owners. Horse owners. Oh, my God. Do not try and tell a horse owner 
anything. No, no. I mean, they've got a horse. They don't need to be told. <laughs> if you're that confident to have a horse. <laughs> um, but no, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's Into the Wild episode, then you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Kofi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.